Tonight we get to Exodus 19, and it really is the end, if you will, of the first stage of the book of Exodus. I think really the way to think about the story of Exodus is to think of it as a great treasure hunt story, except it's a, it's a great treasure hunt story with a twist. Instead of God's people being sent on a journey to find this great treasure, it, you actually find out here in Exodus 19 that it's God's people who are the treasured possession, and it's God himself who goes after them. He seeks after them. He finds them enslaved in Egypt, and he does what needs to be done to rescue them. But this is just the beginning of what it means for God to secure his treasured possession, his people, to be his forever, and to have the kind of intimate relationship that he wants to have with them. So this is just the beginning of this, of this great story, but it's a great treasure hunt story. And here we have, if you will, the conclusion of the first stage of this treasure hunt. God has found the treasure. He's brought them to himself. He tells Moses back in Exodus chapter 3 that you'll know that I'm the God who makes and keeps my promises when after you go uh, into Egypt, you bring back these people and you will worship me again on this mountain. Do you understand that the mountain, Mount Sinai, that they've been brought to here in Exodus 19 is the same place where God spoke to them, spoke to Moses from the burning bush. So we've come full circle, all right? And we're going to pick up the story here in Exodus chapter 19. So follow me, if you will. God says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called out to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and you shall set limits for the people all around them or fences all around them saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, the one that's going to be put to death, but he shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, 
they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. It means don't have sexual relations. doesn't mean that they have to like, completely not see each other. Okay. It's a euphemism for that. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through. means break through those barriers to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people. And told them. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for this passage. We pray that you would help us to worship you through this passage, to understand who you are and where you've brought us, that we would understand a bit more of your ways and worship you truly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Basically, I'm going to look at three things from this passage tonight. First, how did they get here? Right? Here they are at Mount Sinai. How did they get here? Second, who is it that brought them here? Right? What does this passage reveal to us about the God who brought them here? And third, why? Why did he bring them here? Pretty simple, right? How did they get here? What does this passage teach us about the God who brought them here? Who is he? Who is he really? And why? Why did he do it? The first, first point to look at is how did they get here? And what it says right at the beginning is that God tells Moses, uh, look at verse 3, Say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So the first point is to see the way they got here is that God carried them on eagles' wings here. And I know there's a lot of silly Christian songs that have been written sort of with this, this kind of idea. Um, but here's the point you're to get from this. Um, you, you actually, you, this, this is seen over in Deuteronomy chapter 32 in verse 9. Um, it says there that God's, that the, the point of the eagle's wings is to understand that what's significant about eagles from Moses' perspective, from God's people's perspective at this point in history, is that eagles sort of hover over their defenseless young. And watch out for them. The other significance about eagles, when you survey what the Bible has to say about eagles, is they can fight when they need to. So this imagery of God bringing his people, as it were, like like bringing them on eagles' wings, is sort of a double image. On the one, God is their warrior. 
who's watched over them. And the second is, it, it is a way of saying you're defenseless, helpless, you didn't do this yourself. In other words, the way you got here is God brought you here. God did it. And you need to remember that. The most important thing for you to remember as you've now come to Mount Sinai is that you didn't get here because of what you did. Matter of fact, you fought God all the way, and yet still he brought you here. Remember that. Remember where you came from. Remember, you did not earn your salvation. You did not earn the right to be here in any way. The second point is that God did this in fulfillment of his promise. You see this uh, in verse 5, where it says, makes this reference to keeping my covenant. And a lot of scholars say, oh, this is sort of like whoever put together the book of Exodus kind of got things mixed up because the covenant is going to come here in the next couple chapters when this covenant is made with Moses. But if you actually read the book of Exodus carefully, you find that there's a reference to the covenant made with Abraham way back in chapter 2 of Exodus. As a matter of fact, all through the book of Exodus, there are continual references to God remembering the promise that he made to Abraham. And the book of Exodus is seen as the fulfillment of that promise. So this is what God is saying. Look, I've made my promise and I've kept my promise. Keep my covenant. Keep my covenant because I've kept my covenant with you. I promised that one day, like back in chapter 3 of Exodus, I promised that one day, Moses, you and the people would worship me on this mountain and that day is here. You're here. I'm the one who's made and kept my promises. So God carried them on eagles' wings. He did it by his grace, not by anything they did. That's how they got here. God did it in fulfillment of his covenant promise. He made and kept his promise. And third point is to understand, again, this is a great treasure hunt story. When he talks here about tell the people that basically, I, you know, I have, I have sovereign control. I, I own the whole earth. Everything is mine. I can do whatever I want. And what I want is you. I can do whatever I want, but what I want is you to be my treasured possession, right? It's a great treasure story, and God is saying, I've gotten the treasure that I wanted. And, and, and you know, it's fascinating. I love treasure stories. As a matter of fact, if you ask my wife, she'll tell you this, that the treasure hunt is one of the themes of my life. Uh, in so many ways, I'm always seeking out treasure, whether it's like German chocolate that I love and I go to great lengths to find, uh, whether it is cool old used books that I'm always like seeking out for years. It's always been that. Even when I read old books or read old hymnals, I'm always seeking for these, these treasures that have been buried that nobody knows about anymore and trying to bring them to light and share them with other people. Gifts are my love language, and I love to find treasures that I can give to people and share with people. And I love stories about treasure as well. And actually, I was up at a conference at the end of last week up in Michigan, and on the way home, I picked up this book in the, uh, in the airport bookstore called The Lost City of Z, A Tale of Deadly Obsession in the Amazon. It's, it's a great story about a treasure hunt, about this guy, Percy Fawcett. I don't know if you all know about Percy Fawcett, but he was like, kind of like the real-life Indiana Jones really the last of the great explorers who would just kind of take his bull weapon, his machete, and he'd march out into the jungle 
by himself. And in 1925, he basically went out with his son and with his, one of his son's good friends, and they marched out into the Amazon jungle where Brazil and Bolivia come together looking for uh, El Dorado, sort of the mystical, the mythical city of gold, and were never heard from again. And, and it's a fascinating story because in the years since that, nearly 100 people have died going back into that area trying to figure out what happened to him. Nearly 100 people have died. And this guy finally sort of, you know, gets, picks up the trail and is able to track down one of his relatives and she lets him see some of Percy Fawcett's lost diaries that no one's ever able to read. And he's able to kind of, anyway, I'm not going to give away the story. But I just thought, you know, it's fascinating as you read this to think about the kind of things that people will do in search of treasure. And uh, there's all, I mean, think about this, 1925, the kinds of things you have to endure to go into the Amazon jungle looking for treasure. Listen, listen to this. This is just about the bugs and what the bugs do to you. I mean, I, mean, I, I don't know if you ever watch uh, Man vs. Wild or Survivor Man. We love those shows. And um, there's the one, you know, Survivor Man where he's in the Amazon. He's like, this is unbelievable. But in 1925, right? Listen to this. It, you know, this, this book talks about it wasn't so much the big predators, the jaguars and all that sort of things that they were really concerned about. Um, what really bothered Fawcett, Percy Fawcett and his companions, this guy says, was the ceaseless pests. There was the Saba ants that could reduce the men's clothes and rucksacks to threads in a single night. There were the ticks that attacked like leeches, which were another scourge as well, and the red hairy chiggers that consumed human tissue. There were the cyanide squirting millipedes. There was the parasitic worms that caused blindness. There were the burn flies that drove uh, basically this kind of tail thing that they have through your clothing, deposited their larval eggs that would then hatch and burrow under your skin. There were the almost invisible biting flies called pyams that left the explorer's bodies covered in legions. Then there were the kissing bugs, which bite their victim on the lips, transferring a protozoan, which I won't begin to pronounce, that 20 years later, the person, having thinking that they had escaped the jungle unharmed, all of a sudden would begin to die of heart or brain swelling. Then there were really the mosquitoes, which were actually worse than any of these things. They transmitted everything from malaria to bone-crushing fever to elephantitis, you know, where your limbs swell up, right, to yellow fever. Um, even in 1952, Willard Price wrote in his book, The Amazing Amazon, that it's the mosquitoes that constitute the chief single reason while the Amazon is still a frontier to be won. And the thing about yellow fever, well, you know, it's estimated that in these days, 80% of the people who were there in the Amazon contracted malaria. But 50% of them contracted yellow fever, and that was worse, especially when you began to vomit up blood, because then you knew that the end was near. And uh, so they write this story about this guy, and he's out there, you know, every one of, every one of his things, like he never seemed to catch this stuff. It's just remarkable. For some reason, he just said he sort of had this remarkable constitution. But left and right, all around him, you know, after a week or two out in the jungle, everybody in his team has this intense fever. They're shaking uncontrollably. You know, they can't eat. They've got maggots coming out of their arms. It's just on and on and on. And yet he goes back time and time and time and time again, right? What, what, do, we, what, we, what, we, what do we do in search of a great treasure? But, you know, that pales in comparison to what God does to seek after his treasure, right? 
See, this is a story about God and the lengths that he goes to to rescue his people from Egypt. And, And I don't know about you, but I just resonate with a good rescue story. I just love a good treasure hunt story. And this is the story that defines us as the people of God. That you are God's treasured possession. That he goes to incredible lengths to have you to be his very own. And our hearts resonate with this story because this is the story that defines us as God's people. Matter of fact, all the best fairy tales, all the best stories are but echoes of this true story. If we want to explore that a little more, I heartily commend to you J.R.R. Tolkien's essay on fairy stories. You can find it in uh, various volumes of his uh, collected writings where he talks about how the gospel is the true story and all other good stories are but an echo of that story. This is the story, right? And it's always good for God's people to remember this story. God says, look, you've been brought here. Remember how you got here. Remember how you got here. See, Christians who forget where they've come from, Christians who forget where they come from are typically self-righteous and arrogant. Christians who forget where they come from are typically self-righteous and arrogant. Why? Because they've forgotten where they were when grace found them. They forget that they've been brought to where they are by grace. That they didn't just... They didn't just work their way up to this place where they are. They have nothing to pat themselves on the back about. Christians who forget this tend to be arrogant and self-righteous. And and they really are one of the chief barriers to people understanding who God is. Because they've forgotten the story. They've forgotten how they got to where they are. But at the same time, not only are they self-righteous and arrogant... Christians who forget how they got to where they are tend to be anxious and worried as well. Because not only do they forget where they were, they also forget, hey, grace brought you here. And if grace brought you here, well, well, then you can trust that grace will bring you home, that grace will hold on to you. In other words, if Jesus brought you to himself, which required the death of his son, it's really a relatively easy thing for him to hold you and keep you. He did the hard thing already. How ridiculous would it be after doing all that work to bring you to himself to then just say, well, you know, you've just not been having a quiet time lately. I think I've had enough of her. (laughs) Right? That's silly. But our hearts believe that kind of nonsense all the time, don't they? So it's good for God's people to remember how they got to where they are. That's our first point. What's the second thing we need to see in this passage? We need to see who it is that brought them here. And there's a couple aspects of who God is that are particularly uh, emphasized in this passage. The first is the holiness of God. First is the fact that God is a holy God. Now, this is not a popular theme among Christians today. Do I have to tell you that? It's not a popular theme. And I think a lot of people are concerned about this. This past weekend, I had the opportunity to be part of a conference of about 40 professors who teach worship at various evangelical colleges and seminaries from all different denominations, Methodists, 
um, Presbyterians, Baptists. There were even a couple guys there from Jerry Falwell's Liberty University. I mean, it was quite a range of people. And the first night, what we did at this conference is all of the 40 folks stood up one after another and shared one text of Scripture that they thought was vital and important to, to bring up when teaching people about worship. And it's fascinating as everybody kind of went through that. Then the next thing we did is talked about whether or not we detected any common themes to the passages that people had brought up. And the number one theme, without a doubt, everybody said this, was the importance of the holiness of God. And, and the feeling among all these folks was that the, 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 the thing that the evangelical church has really lost is what it means that God is a holy God that we've become so familiar with God, that we've so emphasized, you know, God is our buddy, God is our friend, or even God is our girlfriend, that we, uh, we really have lost really the power of what it means to have God as our friend. Uh, I couldn't help but, you know, think of this um, quote by Annie Dillard. I don't know if you've ever read this. Uh, I bring this up every year or two because I think it's such a fabulous quote um, where she talks about worship and having a a better right conception of who God is. Listen to what she says. She goes, On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs. Remember the early Christians had to live in the catacombs to escape persecution? Um, Outside of those Christians out of the catacombs, I, I don't find most Christians sufficiently sensible of conditions. In other words, she says, Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. But do you ever expect that? Do you expect that when you go to church? Do you expect that when you go to RUF? Do you understand that whenever you come into worship, you come into the presence of the holy God? The holy God. God is holy. See, if you don't have a sense of this, if you don't have a sense of this, that the truth of truths, that this Holy God has taken us to be his treasured possession, is gutted of its power. We we, we just are never amazed by that because if you don't think that God is a holy God or you don't understand that, then what's the big deal over the fact that God has taken us to be his treasured possession? Do you understand? If you don't have a sense of the holiness of God, the grace of God is no big whoop. And it's, it's the reason why so many people are sort of looking for some experience, some sort of spiritual shot in the arm, but they don't understand the holiness of God. It makes no difference to them. And then they wonder why worship leaves them cold and empty. It's so important that we know who it is who has brought us to himself. God is a holy God. And look at the picture we get here. The picture we get here, like in verse 16, 17, 18, 19, it's like being out in the middle of the worst thunderstorm you can imagine with no shelter anywhere. Right? The whole mountain is trembling from the thunder. There's fire pouring down. There's smoke everywhere. The trumpet blast is getting louder and louder and louder and louder. It's a horrifically frightening scene. Does that, does that 
fit your conception of what it's like to stand before God? See, this is the very first time that Israel as a nation stood before God to hear him speak. And it was not a, bit, it was not a little deal. Right? And that's why what you also see is, is God telling them very specifically, here's what you need to do before you come meet with me. So all kinds of things you want to do. And what's fascinating is the picture you get here of Mount Sinai is built into the tabernacle and the temple. In other words, when God tells them later about how to worship, he's going to build in a reminder of this scene. What I mean by that is this. The people are allowed to come to the foot of the mountain. The elders are allowed to go so far up the mountain, but only Moses can go to the top. Now, it's a little hard to see that here in Exodus 19, but if you go a few chapters later over in Exodus 24, it's real clear. Um, Here's the way it's put there. Then God said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron. Remember, Aaron is going to be kind of the priest. Nabab and Abihu, right, who are his sons. And 70 of the elders of Israel. So they're able to go up so far. You are to worship at a distance. But Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near. And the people may not come up with him. So the people are down here, the elders get to come so far, and then Moses alone. This is what's built into the tabernacle and the temple. The people can go only so far. But then the priests are allowed to go to sort of the next stage. But only one can enter in the Holy of Holies, and then only once a year, and that's the high priest. And he has to be covered by blood even to do that. And even when he does come in, he has a rope tied around his ankle so that if he falls dead, nobody will have to go in after him. They can just sort of pull the rope. And he wears bells around the bottom of his robe so that they can hear that he's still moving around in there. If they, if they don't hear it, they're going to they're pull him out because nobody's going in after him, Right? Same thing here. It's like if somebody is so foolish as to go up on the mountain, they're to be stoned, they're to be shot with an arrow, but you're not, you can't go get them or you'll die as well. All right? This is a big deal and it's a frightening deal. And God builds it in to the worship to understand who it is that you're dealing with and to build into them this idea that you can't approach God any way you want. You can't approach God any way you want. Matter of fact, like here, they have to wait until the trumpet sounds. I think the NIV says, until the ram's horn sounds in verse 13, you can't go. And when you do go, make sure you know you're only allowed to go here. That's why Moses goes up to the top and God says, go back down and tell them to make sure they don't come up. And he's like, well, we put the fence down there to keep them off. He says, go back down. Tell them not to come up. Okay. (laughs) You know, he goes back down. He tells them, don't come up. Guys, this is a big deal, right? And here's what you need to understand. True worship is driven by the awe at seeing who God really is and the amazement that he would invite us into his presence and that he would make full provision for us to come into his presence. But that's what God's committed to. What you see here is that God's ultimate goal is for his people to be able to come before him into his presence. But see, there's this kind of weird thing. God says, look, I've brought you here to Mount Sinai, but now you need to stay, stay away. You see that tension? I've brought you here to be my treasured possession. Yeah, but you've got to stay at the foot of the mountain. And this is the tension that pervades the Old Testament. 
That, that, that you're brought here, but you can't quite come here. And it's, the, it's really the, the tension that Jesus comes to deal with. Only through Jesus can God's ultimate goal of having us as his treasured possession and him remaining true to his honor, his holiness, only in Jesus can both of those things come true. That's what the Bible is going to paint for us. One more thing about who he is before we get to the last point. God is the God who speaks. God is a holy God, but he's also the God who speaks. Uh, And again, it's a frightening scene, but it's also an amazing privilege. And God speaks to them publicly to Moses. In other words, verse 9 says that it's important that all the people hear God speaking to Moses so that the people will be able to trust Moses. So if anybody tells you that it doesn't matter what you think of the Bible, what you think of God's word for your faith, tell them, well, gosh, that's not what I get from Exodus 19. God says it's important that the whole of Israel hears God speaking to Moses so that Moses would be trusted. And there are a lot of people today that would say, it doesn't matter whether you trust Moses or whether you trust what he wrote. What matters is that you have some kind of experience with God. But what you see here is the way God is going to relate to his people is through his word. Therefore, it's vital that you be able to trust the one through whom God delivers his word. It's not, it's not a minor thing. It's not a minor thing. Um, last, last thing. Why did he bring them? Why did he bring them here to Mount Sinai? And the answer is because he has plans for them. God has plans for them. First, he wants them to be his special treasure. And the word in Hebrew here refers to a royal treasure. God is the king and they're his royal treasure. And notice the way God says it. He says, basically, I can do what I want. The whole earth is mine and I want you. I want you. (laughs) It's hard for me not to think of my kids' obsession with Pokemon, right? And it's like, you know, they grab the Pokeball, Pokeball and they throw it and say, Pikachu, I choose you. You know, and there's just something about that. Wow, all right, I choose you. That's what God says. I can have anybody I want, right? I've got a full Pokédex. I've got everything, but I choose you, right? My kids will like that someday. They'll listen back to this, and they'll think that was cool. But here's the point. Being a Christian, being a Christian means being God's treasured possession, though you did nothing to deserve it. And in fact, you did all kinds of things that... <laughs> To, to sort of counter-deserve it, if you will. Not only did you not deserve it, you deserve death and hell because that's what Jesus took in your place. And, uh, and, and what does it mean to feel like God's treasure possession? One of my favorite stories about this is uh, a, the story about General Custer's wife. You all know that Ger- General George Custer had a wife. Her name was Libby. And there's, there's this great story. I, I saw it on uh, Discovery Channel or History Channel or something a couple years ago. There was a time when he hadn't seen her all summer long. And I know this isn't a really politically correct story, but he'd been fighting with, with um, Native Americans, big battle, right? You know that that's kind of his claim to fame is doing that. And eventually he ends up getting massacred at a place called Little Bighorn. But here's what you may not know is uh, before that, there was a point at which he'd been out all summer fighting the uh, Indians and he'd never had been able to see her, and he just, it was just killing him, like he had to go see her, just decided, I don't care what it costs, I'm going, so he basically put his men through a 55-hour forced march, 55-hour march, it killed two of his men and a bunch of the horses, he ended up getting court-martialed, 
stripped of his rank and his pay for a year for doing this foolhardy thing. But he had to see her. He just showed up without her knowing he was coming. He was court-martialed. As a matter of fact, he was trying to get back in the good graces of his superiors is the reason that he took the risk that he did in trying to achieve this great victory at Little Bighorn that ended up resulting in him dying. So, you know, he risked everything, his career, everything. He ends up getting killed. But Libby, his wife, writes in her diary about the day that he showed up. She wrote that for me, there was one perfect day. Right? Have you ever known that? Have you ever felt that? To say, for me, I finally got a taste of how much God loves me and what he would do for me to make me his treasured possession. Libby said, for me, there was one perfect day. He wants them to be his special treasure. That's the plan he has for them. He also wants them to be his priests to the world. Now, this is an interesting thing because the priests haven't officially been instituted. And yet it does seem that there's some references to Israel offering sacrifices. So they seem to have some sort of priesthood, even if the full developed priesthood doesn't happen until a little later in Exodus with the giving of the law. You know, the giving of the law we're going to look at next week isn't just the Ten Commandments. It's a whole bunch of stuff. Okay? Um, But here's the thing. Israel knew about the priesthood because all the nations around them in the ancient world had priests. And priests basically did two things. Priests represented you to God. They interceded on your behalf to God. And priests sort of represented God to the people. And you see that even in this passage. Moses is acting as a priest. The, the, you know, God speaks to him and then he speaks to the people. And then the spe- people, you know, speak to, to God, want to speak to God, they speak to Moses, and then Moses tells God. They said they're going to do it, right? So here's what you see. God has said to his people, I have made you my treasured possession so that you could show the world what a difference it makes to be in a relationship with me like this. In other words, I want you to be priests for the world. I've called you to be my treasure possession, not just so you can say, oh, isn't it so great to be God's treasure possession? No, I've called you to be my treasure possession so you could be my priests to the world. But it doesn't take long for Israel to fail miserably in this task. Because while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law, you remember what Israel does? They make the golden calf. They worship an idol. And it's tragic, but in Exodus 32, 25, it says that rather than Israel being the priests to the world that God intended, now they've actually become a laughingstock to the nations. That's the great tragedy, that instead of worshiping God and representing to all the people around what he's like and who he is and what a difference he makes, now they've actually, by worshiping another God, they've made him and they've made themselves a laughingstock, right? And so what you see here is that it's only in Jesus that God's plan can be fulfilled. It's only in Jesus that God's plan can be fulfilled. You see, it's only in Christ that we can truly see the holiness of God, right? Do you understand what the cross is about? What the cross is about is, is, is about Jesus, who was the only one who ever dared to approach God covered in filth, the filth of your sin and my sin. And what happened to him when he did that? God obliterated him. The cross is where you see the holiness of God. 
that can't look upon God. That's why Jesus, for the first time ever, cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is it that you can't look upon me? Why is it that darkness covers the whole earth? Why is it that I've had to literally suffer hell here on the cross? And the answer is because of both the love and the holiness of God. If you think lightly of the holiness of God, look at the cross. The holiness of God is much bigger than you think. Second, it's in Christ that we see how God's plan for the world can be accomplished. And Justin referenced this at the beginning for the call to worship. You see, God's people fail to be the priests to the world that they're supposed to be. But God says in Isaiah, look, I'm going to send the Messiah to be the priest to the world. I'm not sending him just for the Jews. I'm going to make him a light to the Gentiles. He's going to be the one to do what my people fail to do. But then as you look in 1 Peter 2, you find that now the church, through Christ, is going to be what God's people had always supposed to have been. In other words, what it says here in 1 Peter 2 is, you, the church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You see, the language that God uses for Israel here in Exodus, God applies to the church, not Israelites, in 1 Peter 2, to the church. And he says, you are the royal nation, the royal priesthood, I mean, the holy nation, the people belonging to God, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And then a couple verses later in verse 12, it says this, live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Do you see? The point of the church, the point of God sending Jesus is so that the church could now be what God had always intended his people to be. And that's why Peter says, look, you're to live good lives among the pagans. You're to be priests for the world. The world is supposed to understand what God and his love is like by looking at you. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us to fulfill that, right? And finally this. It's in Jesus, only in Jesus, that we see the full significance of what it means to be God's treasured possession. It's one thing for God to exercise his power to deliver them from Egypt, but it's another thing entirely for God to take on human flesh, to take on the shame and the humiliation of the cross for his people. Do you see? It's one thing to look at Exodus 19 and say, wow, Look at what God does to have his people as his treasured possession. I mean, he had to part the Red Sea. He had to provide manna in the wilderness. He had to provide water from the rock. Yeah, 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 that's great. But that pales in comparison to what it took for him to secure us as his treasured possession. Because it took Jesus coming to die a torturous death on a cross. But that's what Jesus did. And if you want to get a sense of what it means to be God's treasured possession, you need to understand what Jesus had to pay for you to be his treasured possession, right? The way you know the value of a treasure is what you're willing to pay for it. How many of y'all seen Slumdog Millionaire, right? Marvelous movie. Go see this movie. What a beautiful picture we see of this. The beginning of that movie when the little boy is desperate to get that autographed picture and what he goes through. Do you all remember the scene? Where he's trapped in the, in the outhouse. And, and, and he's, he's, there's only one way for him to get this picture of his movie star idol autographed. And it revolves him what? Diving in to the depths. The place you don't want to have to go. 
emerging fully caked in stuff that you don't want to know about, right? Go see the movie. You'll understand what I mean. But, but do you see what a picture of the cross that is? What does that show you about how much this kid valued this treasure? This is what Jesus did for you. Jesus went to those kind of depths so that you would know that you are his treasured possession. And he would rather die than live without you. And I think really that's the key. That's the key to being priest for the world is to understand how secure that love makes you. But more on this later. Let me pray for us.